Beyond Barbarossa, episode 41, A Stalingrad Christmas. At the upper dawn west of Serafimovich, Lieutenant Felice Braci, who had come to Russia because he wanted to see the wondrous steppe country, now ran across it to save his life. He had been rudely awakened the day before by an aide, shouting that most of his 3rd Bersaglieri regiment had scattered to the south. Braci thought he was dreaming, that the orderly was playing a joke on him, but the man's terrified eyes quickly brought him to his senses. Grabbing a rifle, he ran to the command post, where a bewildered officer ordered him to retreat 30 miles south to a place called Kalnikov. The officer insisted that all heavy equipment, except Braci's two anti-tank guns, must be destroyed prior to departure. The 5th Company of Bersaglieri moved out shortly and, after several hours, other nondescript units joined the column. Marching at the rear, Braci personally commanded the two heavy guns. Behind him, there was no one. Nothing but snow and wind that cut into his back. When night came, with the temperature well below zero, Braci's guns became harder to move. The men hauling them had deep red creases on their hands, and Braci himself felt terribly weary. But he continued to shout encouragement and helped haul, lift, or push the cannon through the drifting snow. More and more men were losing hope. One Bersaglieri threw himself under a passing truck. Another sat down on a hump of snow and started to cry. Still clutching his submachine gun, he sobbed his torment to Braci, who tried to get him on his feet. The man refused and sat there, while the column continued on out of sight. At 9 a.m. on December 20, Braci reached Kalmakov, now the magnet for thousands of exhausted and frightened soldiers. The town was a tangle of guns, trucks, baggage, and excited soldiers who ran about trying to find their friends. Braci soon received new orders. His regiment, now reformed, led the retreat to Meshkov, a key road junction on the road to Milorovo. The sounds of thousands of boots crunching the crisp snow lulled the marchers until the sudden roar of engines in the distance alerted them. Braci and his men went to the front of the march and hid their guns behind some tall shrubs. Minutes passed. Braci felt hundreds of eyes staring at him, pleading for protection from the menacing sound. Then tanks! Soviet T-34s appeared about a half mile ahead. Circling cautiously for a moment, as though focusing on Braci, the tank sniffed the air and finally turned away. The march to Meshkov continued. Late that afternoon, Braci saw the spires of a cathedral, a fairy castle that dominated the skyline. Spreading out in skirmish lines, the Bersaglieri approached the outskirts of Meshkov. Then a mortar shell plopped into the snow, Machine guns chattered. In despair, Braci realized that the Russians had gotten there ahead of the regiment and blocked the road south. The beautiful stone church in the middle of town was the rallying point of the Soviet defense. Its thick walls defied destruction. In the darkness, thousands of Italians ran toward it, hollering their battle cry, Savoia! Savoia! Tracer bullets scoured a deadly pattern through them, and screams echoed around the churchyard. With a clear field of fire, Braci shot round after round at the building, but the Russian fire never slackened. In the unnatural light, the church's basement glowed brightly from gun bursts and flames. 
above the crescendo of combat, of orders being shouted and countermanded, Prarachi also heard the moans and pitiful crying that marked the terrible cost of the battle. The price was too high. Italian commanders finally called back their troops, and the Brasilieri reformed and trudged back to Kalmakov. There, at a tense meeting the next morning, Prachi was told to dig in with his guns until support troops arrived. His commanding officer promised that a German task force was on the way. It was wishful thinking on his part. Mortar fire suddenly descended from surrounding hills and induced immediate panic on most of the Brasilieri, who stampeded. Bracci crouched beside a house, which exploded and showered him with debris. Dazed but unhurt, the lieutenant staggered out to the road and jumped on the running board of a passing car, which plunged into a drift and bogged down. At that moment, Russian horsemen appeared on the brow of the hill. While mortar shells kept exploding, the trapped Italians raised their hands in surrender. A colonel beside Bracci looked at his watch. This is the end for us, he said mournfully. We are prisoners. It was 9.30 a.m. on the morning of December 21, 1942. That passage was from the 1973 history of the Battle of Stalingrad called Enemy at the Gates by William Craig, a book that had little to do with the movie of the same name. Welcome to Beyond Barbarossa, the first English language podcast in the world to focus on the Eastern Front of World War II. I'm Scott Burry, podcasting to you from the Redbeard Studio on traditional Anishinaabe Algonquin territory, also called Ottawa, where winter has arrived. But it did, but then it seems to have stepped back for a few days. Maybe it forgot something. Last episode left the German 6th Army trapped in the Kessel, or Cauldron, in Stalingrad. Operation Blue, starting in early July 1942, had led Army Group South, broken into Groups A and B, across an enormous swathe of territory in southern Russia, the land between the Don and Volga rivers and south to the slopes of the Caucasus Mountains. By August 23rd, the 6th Army attacked the city of Stalingrad at the Great Bend of the Volga River, and over the next four months bombed, shelled, and burned it, driving their panzers and soldiers deeper into the city, shelling Red Army men and resources on the river and even across it. But somehow, the Soviets held on to a sliver of the Volga bank for four months now. At a cost in casualties, in lives, that staggered the German commanders. Casualties on both sides. On 19 November, the Soviets launched a relief operation, Operation Uranus. Two fronts, or groups of entire armies, launched an attack on the Axis flanks west and south of the city. 
these areas were defended by Italian, Hungarian, and Romanian units, which were weaker and less well-equipped than the Germans. And they were spread out widely across the steppe. In the teeth of a blizzard, the Red Army's tanks slashed from the west and the south, linking up at Kalach on the Don River, 60 miles or 100 kilometers southwest of Stalingrad, trapping the 6th Army. Hitler forbade the 6th Army from retreating from Stalingrad. Hermann Goering, overfed head of the Luftwaffe, or German Air Force, promised to airlift everything the 6th Army needed to hold the city. 600 tons per day of food, fuel, ammunition, replacement parts, reinforcements. And yes, he also promised to evacuate the wounded on the return flights. But the Luftwaffe never even came close to meeting this target. Their best day brought in less than half the requirement. The Germans then reorganized their remaining forces in the east, creating Army Group Dawn with Field Marshal Erich von Manstein in command, often called the best German general of the war. They launched Operation Winter Storm, an attempt to break through the Soviet encirclement and relieve the 6th Army. The idea was to create a corridor to bring in supplies and reinforcements and evacuate the wounded. But as the Germans began this attempt, the Soviets weren't exactly sitting around and gloating. Four days after the start of Winter Storm, the Red Army launched Operation Little Saturn, encircling the Italian 8th Army 80 kilometers west of Stalingrad. Manstein had to send a panzer division to help them, which took the panzers away from Winter Storm. Then another Soviet offensive destroyed many transport planes that used to bring supplies to Stalingrad. So even less supplies were getting to the besieged German forces. Ultimately, Manstein's relief force stalled on the Mishkova River, 40 kilometers south of the Stalingrad Castle. And that's where we left off last episode. Before we continue with this particular story, it's time for our regular feature, What Else is Happening in the War? In the Pacific, the Battle of Guadalcanal continued. On 1st December, Japanese destroyers sank the U.S. cruiser Northampton. On the 7th of December, the U.S. launched its biggest battleship, the USS New Jersey. In North Africa, General Erwin Rommel, commander of the Africa Corps, retreated from El El Gila on December 7th, retreating to Tripoli, where the Germans would make a final stand against the Allies until April 1943. Meanwhile, American and other Allied troops continued to drive the Germans and Italians across Algeria in Operation Torch. On 22nd December, American troops began arriving in North Africa to prepare for Operation Husky, the invasion of Sicily. On the 23rd of December, Japanese planes bombed Calcutta, India. There are also some very important developments taking place away from the battlefields around the world. On 2nd December, a team led by Enrico Fermi at the University of Chicago succeeded in starting the first nuclear chain reaction. And on the 17th of December, the nascent United Nations issued a joint declaration condemning the Holocaust of Jewish people in Europe. 
To sum up, by the end of 1942, the tide of the war has turned, as Gandalf might have said. The Germans were trapped in Tunisia and in Stalingrad, and the Japanese have begun to pull back from their farthest reaches across the Pacific. So now, let's zoom in again on the Eastern Front. By mid-December 1942, Private Eckhard Brunert from Boblingen, near Stuttgart, was only one of many soldiers in the 6th Army hoping for orders to begin the drive southward to break through the Red Armies and link up with General Hoth's Panzer Army, which was part of Manstein's relief operation, advancing from the south to relieve the men in Stalingrad. The trouble was Hoth's relief force was stopped about 25 miles or 42 kilometers south of the castle. All the generals of the German army knew the only sensible option was for the 6th Army to put everything it had left into a breakout attempt. Abandon Stalingrad and fight its way through the five Red Armies encircling it. Join up with all the other German forces of Army Groups A and B. But Hitler had ordered the 6th Army and its leader, General Paulus, to hold Stalingrad. They could not leave the city. Hitler said that the 6th Army could break up and link up with the relief force, but it had to hold its position in Stalingrad at the same time, depending on the Luftwaffe to supply them with food, fuel, and ammunition by air. As I mentioned, the problem with this plan was that the Luftwaffe was never able to bring in more than a fraction of the supplies. The 210,000 surviving men of the 6th Army and its allied Italian, Romanian, Hungarian, and Croatian forces trapped in the cauldron needed every single day. The German Air Force just didn't have the number of planes needed to deliver 600 tons per day. And... Every day, the Soviets shot down more. Actually, a worse problem was the weather. In December 1942, the Germans lost more planes in accidents than to Red Army anti-aircraft fire or Red Air Force fighters. And an even worse problem was that the Germans remaining in the cauldron, even these 210,000 men, just didn't have the strength, the healthy soldiers, the tanks and the guns and the ammunition to do to both objectives, to hold the Soviets at bay and break through to link up with HOT. The Germans in the cauldron only had enough fuel to move 20 kilometers or about 16 miles. So close, but still not close enough to the panzers coming from the south. Back in Stalingrad, on the ground, Private Brunert and his comrades waited and worried, hoping that Paulus would get the code word thunderclap, authorizing the evacuation from Stalingrad. Then, on 21st December, as Lieutenant Bracci is surrendering, Private Brunert's regiment was ordered to destroy all unneeded vehicles, trucks, cars, and motorcycles. I'm going to quote now from William Craig's book about the Battle of Stalingrad, Enemy at the Gates. Quote, For his part, Brunert was delighted. The destruction of cumbersome equipment signaled a decisive attempt to break out. 
and he had noticed one special truck filled with warm clothing sent by German civilians to the men at the front. The vehicle would have to be burned, but its contents, fur boots, warm gloves and scarves, obviously would be distributed among the soldiers. Standing in line at the door of a huge convoy bus, Bernard ogled the gift-filled vehicle until a soldier poured gasoline on it and set it afire. Brunert could not even scream his rage as the precious cargo was consumed in the blaze. Instead, he boarded the bus, sat down heavily on his assigned seat, and began to cry. Suddenly bitter, he fumed, as long as our superiors are well clothed, nothing else seems to matter. End quote. Just another day in the cauldron. The situation would get worse. In previous episodes, I described the dire situation of the Germans and Axis troops in the cauldron. They were short of food, and rations had been reduced to starvation levels. Soldiers and officers got 100 grams of bread and defrosted horse meat per day. The Germans were slaughtering the animals that had pulled so much of their equipment across Europe. And just for reference, 100 grams of bread is a about a slice. Prisoners of war, even the Hiwis, the Russian and other nationalities working for the Germans, whether or not voluntarily is a matter for a whole episode in itself, those people got less than that, often none at all, which meant thousands starved to death. The weather also took a toll. I described last episode how thousands of apparently young, healthy German soldiers would suddenly die. The effect of cumulative stress, hunger, and exposure to cold. Despite the propaganda that the Germans were sharing back home, morale in the cauldron was low. Understandably, coal mine low. And news made it worse. For instance, when the relief force came so tantalizingly close to the cauldron and then stalled, some of the Germans on the front lines could hear their hoped-for rescue. From Antony Beaver's excellent book on the subject, Stalingrad, the the Fateful Siege, 1942-1943, this quote. In the Stalingrad pocket, Hans Erdmann Schoenbeck, a 20-year-old officer with the 24th Panzer Division, remembered, the noise of the battle from the relief army had been getting closer day by day. We geared up for the last leap westward to meet our liberators. But only in our minds, for we knew that we were almost out of fuel and ammo. With the first day of Christmas came the full, awful certainty. The relief troops were unable to make it. The battle sounds were getting fainter and moving to the west. Our thoughts of escape had been in vain. End quote. From the book Slaughter on the Eastern Front Hitler and Stalin's War, 1941 to 1945, by Anthony Tucker Jones. Quote, over and over again, German generals begged Hitler to order the Sixth Army to escape Stalingrad. Manstein sent numerous telegrams explaining the shortages of food, fuel, and ammunition detailing the amount that the 6th Army needed and the numbers of people, soldiers, officers, wounded, and prisoners still in the city and how many planes they needed to bring in the supplies. 
that number was several times what was available. And Hitler continued to refuse to order Paulus to abandon Stalingrad. Now, in a way, Hitler did have a point, much as I hate to admit it. If the 6th Army could not reach relief, and the relief force could not reach the 6th Army, why abandon their positions? Hitler even yelled at Zeitzler, his chief of staff, once, they don't have the fuel they need to escape. I don't pretend to know what Hitler was thinking. Oh, God, what an idea. Anyway, it seems to me that the choice was between destruction in a breakout attempt and a slow death in the cauldron. Apparently, Hitler decided on the slow death. Just to give you an idea of how bad the situation was in the castle, and not just in the city of Stalingrad itself, but also on that area of ground about 30 kilometers wide, west of Stalingrad, on the steppe, the Soviets brought in a number of uh, journalists, not just Soviet journalists, but international ones as well. One was Walter Kerr, a reporter with the New York Herald Tribune. And he was invited to visit one of the towns that had been liberated from the Germans during Operation Uranus, a town called Koltonokovo. Kerr recalled the journey and witnessing the detritus of war. Quote, as we drove across the Kalmuk steppes, we passed some of the great battlefields south of Stalingrad. There was almost no snow on the ground. As far as you could see, there was brown steppe grass showing through the white. Then we would pass an area where a tank battle had taken place, and you could almost reconstruct the scene by the position of the damaged machines. Forty or fifty Russian tanks would be scattered about, all pointing toward the west the direction they were headed when stopped by anti-tank shells or bombs. Then, 30 or 40 yards beyond them, would be 50 or 60 German machines pointing to the east, rusty, burned out, and useless. Here and there were smashed anti-tank guns, hundreds of empty shell cases, with the bodies of their crews spread around for 75 feet. It was over this area the Russian forces south of Stalingrad had moved in the early days of the 19th November counteroffensive. End quote. So what were the Soviets' plans at this point in mid to late December? Well, the Stavka wasn't just waiting for the 6th Army to starve to death. No, they were making plans, moving forces around, getting ready to administer the Coupe de Gras. But before we get to that, this is a good point to take a short break. I'll come back to the story right after these messages. This is Beyond Barbarossa, the first and so far only English language podcast that focuses on the Eastern Front of World War II. And by now, you know I'm Scott Burry, writer and narrator. This podcast's only source of funding right now is you through Patreon. So if you like this podcast, why not subscribe or follow or whatever your preferred podcasting platform calls it? And please consider supporting it at any amount through Patreon. Visit beyondbarbarossa.ca 
and click on the Patreon link in the banner. Thanks. Did you know that the cappuccino was invented by a Ukrainian? Or that many first names, like Philip and Agatha, were brought to Western Europe by Ukrainian princesses? Or that a Ukrainian was the first female given the rank of officer in a modern army? Well, if you didn't, and even if you did, you can learn more about my podcast, Wandering the Edge, a podcast about Ukrainian history with a spot of travel. And all in English. And if you like Beyond Barbarossa as much as I do, because, well, it makes my life a whole lot easier since I don't have to do any episodes deep diving into the Eastern Front of the Second World War, please take a listen to Wandering the Edge for a deep dive into Ukrainian history, culture, and traditions. Find out more on wanderingtheedge.net. And now let's get back to Scott exploring and explaining the Eastern Front of the Second World War. Thanks for coming back. We're in late December 1942 with the German 6th Army in Stalingrad. I have just described how bad the situation was. I almost feel sorry for them. And then I remember that these men signed up. Yeah, they volunteered for this assault on another people. They knew they were going to eradicate another nation or as they put it, another race, to in order to make living space for their own people. So, no sympathy for murderers. Anyway, back to the story. Even before winter storms stalled on the Mishkova River south of Stalingrad, Stalin ordered General Nikolai Voronov, the Stavka representative for Operation Little Saturn, see last episode, to join General Rakosovsky at the Dawn Front's headquarters. Together, they were to produce plans for that final destruction of the 6th Army. Voronov, despite Stalin's impatience, took time for a thorough inspection of the troops in the area. He noted with some anger the poor coordination among Red Army anti-aircraft batteries, fighter squadrons, and ground observers. Apparently, while he was driving across the steppe toward the front to inspect the forces, he saw German transport planes flying towards Stalingrad without any opposition or even any anti-aircraft fire. This understandably ticked him off a little bit. According to Antony Bivor in his excellent book, as I mentioned before, The Siege of Stalingrad, Quote, the major general in charge of anti-aircraft operations was terrorized into feverish activity. End quote. Soviet intelligence at this point estimated and told Voronov that the number of German fighters in the cauldron was about 86,000. This was way low. At this point, it's hard to get an estimate because Germans died by the thousands every day. But at this point, there were probably twice that many. But as described, they were in a sorry state, starved, cold, underclothed, dying as they stood. Anyway, the Stavka planned Operation Ring to finally close on Stalingrad. And they decided to start it on 27 December. 
Its first focus would be a nose, so-called nose, a small salient in the southwest corner of the cauldron. You can see this in the maps I've put on the website. Now, the Germans looked at maps too, and they anticipated that when the Soviet attack came, it would start at the nose. But as usual, Stalin stuck his nose into the details and ordered that the direction of attack against the castle would come from the north and the south. Then he asked who would be in supreme command of this phase of the Battle of Stalingrad. Would it be Yatomenko, the man who had helped plan the whole Operation Uranus and led the forces attacking from the south? Or would it be Rokosovsky, the commander brought in for that northern arm of the attack? Yatomenko and Rokosovsky were rivals pretty intensely at this point. At this meeting in Moscow, one of the members, Listovka, suggested that Rokosovsky should be the, the leader. Stalin turned to Zhukov and asked for his opinion. Yeremenko will be very hurt, Zhukov answered. We are not high school girls, Stalin said. Rokosovsky it was, and Zhukov had to break the bad news to Yeremenko. The plans gave Rokosovsky 47 divisions to take out Stalingrad, comprising 218,000 men. This Soviet force had 5,610 field guns and heavy mortars, 169 tanks, and was supported by 300 aircraft. So even though the Soviet estimates of German strength were ridiculously low, this force still by far outstripped what the Germans could bring to, get, to bear. Now, I said that uh, the plan initially was to start the offensive on the 27th of December, but getting all these men, equipment, ammunition, and other resources together ran into, well, this is Russia, so it ran into delays. After several delays, Voronov told Stalin they still needed more time to get ready. Stalin reportedly said, quote, You'll be sitting around there until the Germans take you and Rokosovsky prisoners. End quote. Still, he agreed to a new start date of 10th January 1943. Now, understandably, uh, while the Soviets are getting their shit together, the Germans start to wonder when that final attack would come. They knew it was coming. They just were kind of surprised that it hadn't come yet. General Martin Fiebig, commander of the 8th Air Corps, wondered, why don't the Russians crush the castle like a ripe fruit? Inside the cauldron, German soldiers tried to observe Christmas. Yes, even in the midst of the bloodiest battle in human history. Weeks before, men had started to put aside bits of their rations, saving the up for a Christmas feast. Or as gifts to each other. Some made advent crowns from steppe grass instead of evergreen boughs and carved little Christmas trees out of wood. General Edler von Daniels set up in his bunker a Christmas tree. Underneath was a cradle holding a photo of his newborn baby. Dr. Kurt Ruber of the 16th Panzer Division, apparently a theologian and friend of Albert Schweitzer, 
He took a captured Russian map, the only large piece of paper he could find, and on the back drew a picture of the Madonna and child. This became known, has become known, as the Fortress Madonna, which later hung in the Kaiser Wilhelm Memorial Church in Berlin. On Christmas Eve, men shared their cigarettes and bread as presents and gathered to sing Silent Night, in between landing of Soviet bombs. German soldiers home around this time maintained the charade that things were going well, that they kept their hopes up. One wrote, quote, In our hearts, we all keep hoping that everything will change. Most of them wrote longingly of their families and homes. On the other hand, Russian letters home were, had a completely different tone. One wrote to his wife on Christmas Eve, which wasn't Christmas Eve for Russians, even if they were Christian at this point. Orthodox Christmas is two weeks later than the Western Christmas. Anyway, this one wrote, quote, We are pushing the serpents back to where they came from. Our successful advance brings our next meeting closer, end quote. Another named Kolya wrote, quote, Hello, Marissa. I've been fighting here for three months, defending our beautiful location deleted by censor. We have started pressing the enemy strongly. Now we have encircled the Germans. Every week, a few thousand are taken prisoner and several thousand are destroyed on the field of battle. There are just the most stubborn SS soldiers left. They have fortified themselves in bunkers and shoot from them. And now I'm going to blow up one of those bunkers. Goodbye, Kolya. End quote. Again, to quote from Antony Beaver's Stalingrad, The Fateful Siege, 1942 to 1943, at seven o'clock on Christmas morning, the Sixth Army War Diary recorded, quote, no supply flights arrived in the last 48 hours, supplies and fuel coming to an end, end quote. Later that day, Paula sent a warning signal to Army Group Dawn to be passed back to General Zeitzler, Hitler's chief of staff. Quote, if we do not receive increased rates of supplies in the next few days, we must expect a greatly increased death rate through starvation. End quote. On Christmas Day, the men in the cauldron had not yet heard about the Red Army raid on the airfield at Tatsinskaya, which I described last episode. That was the main depot, main air depot for supplying the cauldron. The Soviet Red Army blew up about 24 planes, no longer able to fly even what meager supplies they could to the city. That day, Christmas Day, the temperature fell to minus 25 degrees. Frostbite cases continued to rise, and 20 prisoners were dying every day because they received virtually no food except for rotting corn from the destroyed grain silos. Meanwhile, a number of German doctors would refuse to allow cases of frostbite to be evacuated because they claimed they could be self-inflicted. Christmas night was, quote, a beautiful starry night, end quote. And you know what a clear night in winter means. It gets even colder. The next morning, the Soviets struck again in the northeastern sector of the cauldron. A dozen German units of the 16th Panzer Division and the 60th Motorized Infantry Division, or what was left of them, fought in wind and minus 35 degrees. Even so, even in these conditions, they managed to destroy, according to their own records anyway, 70 Soviet tanks. 
That day, Paulus sent another message to the high command. Quote, Bloody losses, cold, and insufficient supplies have reduced fighting strength of division severely. End quote. He went on to say they would not be able to withstand a sustained attack by the Red Army. At this period, fighting continued in the city of Stalingrad itself. Once again, I turn to Antony Bevor's book, Stalingrad, The Fateful Siege. So talking about the fighting on Christmas time, a certain Hans Urban, a 28-year-old police sergeant from Darmstadt, described the fighting at the end of December in the factory district. Quote, The enemy used to attack at dawn and at dusk after a heavy artillery and mortar preparation. If they captured two or three bunkers from us, we would try to get them back later. On 30 December, after many of these attacks, I was ordered to take my rapid-fire group forward. My nine men, with their machine guns, were able to hold off the next attack by about 300 men from Svartakova. The 20 infantrymen left in this sector were so exhausted from all the attacks that they could not offer much help. Most were ready to abandon their positions. I had, with my two machine guns, no field of fire. The enemy were able to make use of the terrain and the ruins. We had to let the Russians get to within 20 yards before opening rapid fire. At least 22 were left dead in front of our positions. The surviving Russians tried to flush us out with grenades. The Russians attacked again on the same sector at daybreak on New Year's morning with three companies. It's hard to make an accurate estimate because they were shooting from holes in the ground, from behind collapsed walls or piles of rubble. We got them in a crossfire from the two machine guns, and they suffered heavy casualties. A mortar man was hit, and although I had never trained with the weapon, we were able to use their own ammunition against them. After it was over, we were so weak and exhausted, and there were so many dead lying around in the open, frozen stiff, that we could not even bury our own comrades. End quote. By New Year's Eve, the number of men left in the cauldron was about 150,000, down from an earlier estimate of 210,000 in early December. That's right, a loss of 60,000 men in a matter of weeks. Of those 150,000, less than one in five were front-line troops, according to Antony Bevor. The remnants of companies and battalions were amalgamated into ad hoc battle groups. New Year's Eve arrived before a major Soviet offensive with a fireworks display. That is, they shot bright artillery fire into the air. The Germans responded with their own fireworks display, but they used only star shells. That is, they made light, but they didn't, could not afford to waste their high explosive. The Soviets continued to celebrate New Year's. One soldier boasted that he drank 250 grams of vodka that night. That's about a cup for my American listeners. The next day, to avoid a hangover, he drank another cup of vodka. Hitler issued a New Year's message to the Sixth Army. Quote, In the name of the whole German people, I send you and your valiant army the heartiest good wishes for the new year. 
The hardness of your perilous position is known to me. The heroic stand of your troops has my highest respect. You and your soldiers, however, should enter the new year with the unshakable confidence that I and the whole German Wehrmacht will do everything in our power to relieve the defenders of Stalingrad, and that with your staunchness will come the most glorious feat in the history of German arms. End quote. Notice he didn't actually say he was going to get them out of there. Yet the Germans, including the men in the castle, bought it. They believed Hitler would not abandon the German men in Stalingrad and that they would be rescued. Well, some did. Not Private Brennard. Operation Ring was ready to go for 10th January 1943. Before that, though, General Voronov received more orders from Moscow. Deliver an ultimatum to the 6th Army. So he prepared one, and when Stalin had approved the text, Voronov prepared to deliver it. The, deliver, the delivery of the ultimatum to Paulus is a tale in itself, but it will have to wait until next episode. Because it doesn't actually take place until the second week of January 1943, and we're tracking the development of the war in the East chronologically. So as I'm speaking to you, it's still mid-December. Which means that the next episode of Beyond Barbarossa will return to the pod waves at the end of January. I'm going to take a break for the holidays and a little bit longer. I plan to do a lot of work on the podcast ahead of the delivery of episodes. Hopefully that will mean I won't be scrambling just before um, delivery day. And maybe, just maybe, I can work it out so that Patreon supporters actually get episodes in advance. That's a goal. Wish me luck. Happy New Year, and I'll talk to you again on 29th January, 2024. Thank you for listening to Beyond Barbarossa, the podcast about the Eastern Front of the Second World War. As always, please visit the website beyondbarbarossa.ca or beyondbarbarossa.podbean.com where you'll find maps to help you place the cities and towns I mentioned in each episode and to visualize the nose in the cauldron. You can also listen to the episode on my own website, writtenword.ca. Click on the podcast button in the banner. I want to thank very much all who have supported this podcast through Patreon. I really appreciate it. If you like this episode, please consider following Beyond Barbarossa on your preferred podcasting app. And I'd really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever you listen. That really helps spread the word to others interested in history. If you like, you can also find every episode through my website, writtenword.ca. Just click on the podcast button in the banner. If you have a question, a correction, or a comment, please don't hesitate to reach out. You can get to me by email at contact at beyondbarbarossa.ca or through the Facebook Beyond Barbarossa page. I'd love to hear from you. Original music was composed and recorded by Nicholas Burry. I'm Scott Burry. Till next episode, have a happy, peaceful, and safe holiday season and a happy new year. And remember that whenever the water gets rough and moves fast, the thing to do is keep your paddles in the water. 
Slava Ukraina.